0: It was midnight at the Playboy Mansion in Los Angeles. The party was in full swing. The cocktails were flowing, the music was pumping, and revelers were splashing around in the grotto whirlpools. But there was also a pensive figure sitting alone in the cigar alcove. Now, I had come to the party not for the hijinks, but because I knew this eccentric genius determined to save the world would be there. I wanted to meet him. I spent the next few hours talking to him. It quickly became clear that he wasn't your garden-variety Silicon Valley playboy. His ambition was to save humanity from climate change. He was building rocket ships to turn mankind into a multi-planetary species, he told me, a plan B in case Earth became uninhabitable. But he's also hoping to revolutionize clean energy and transportation with his other company. That company was Tesla, and the man was Elon Musk. Tesla has since defied the motor industry by making electric cars desirable. Governments from California to China have offered big subsidies to make them affordable. They've done the hard part, but what about the rest of us? What changes should we be making to tackle climate change? I'm Vijay Warren, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. And I'm the host of To a Lesser Degree. In this series, we're taking a clear-eyed look at the people, the politics, and the technologies that will be needed in the fight against extreme climate change. And in this week's episode, we're asking what impact individual behavior can have on the climate. Does it matter what you eat or where you fly? We'll map out the ways society can rise to the challenge of climate change and ask if individual action can really make a difference. Joining me once again to chew this over are Katrine Brahik, Environment Editor at The Economist, and our Briefings Editor, Oliver Morton.
1: Hi Vijay, good to be here.
0: Yeah, nice to hear you, Vijay. So one thing that comes up a lot when talking about emissions reductions is the role that individuals and individual choice can play in slowing climate change. But what exactly are we talking about here?
1: Personally, I think what we're talking about is every one of us has an individual carbon footprint and we can debate how much impact you can have on the global system by changing your personal carbon footprint. A large number of people, I think increasingly, want to feel like they are part of the solution, whatever that is.
2: I hear what Kat says, but I think another way to look at it is that it's a way to make people feel individually guilty about the issue without offering them real solutions because individual action taken by a sporadic small number of people is just not the way that things get sorted out in the world. Back in the late
0: 1970s, the American president, Jimmy Carter, dealt with the energy crisis that America was suffering at that time from the second oil shock. He gave a famous presidential address in which he encouraged a moral change in behavior, saying that Americans needed to conserve and turn down the thermostat. He wore a scratchy, uncomfortable sweater himself. But this speech didn't go over well with Americans. And people who look at energy history say that this moralistic approach to conservation and tut-tutting is less successful than
2: economy-wide efforts at energy efficiency. So what do you think about that distinction? I think you can see the difference pretty clearly in the fact that the first order, the best thing an American can do to improve their carbon footprint is move to Europe. (laughs) Well, that would take me way over my carbon straitjacket. I
1: mean, carbon budget. (laughs) Wouldn't it? No, no that no. one flight to Europe won't. The, the benefits of actually moving to Europe will outweigh the one flight, ultimately.
0: I intend to eat a lot of beef when I get there, by the way.
2: <laughs> and the point isn't that Europeans are more moral than Americans. It's that Europeans live in a system with fewer carbon dioxide emissions per head than Americans do. Still far too much carbon dioxide emission, but less. Similarly, Europeans could move to Japan. And these are all countries which have high standards of living. And the difference between them isn't the morality of their people. It's the structure of their energy services and the structure of their economy and the weight that successive governments have given to improving emissions in various different ways. I think that, that, that really answers the question. Individual morality is fine, but it doesn't bring in and of itself collective solutions.
1: Demand and in individual choices are good, but the system has a responsibility to make those choices available to the individuals.
0: Of the choices that individuals can reasonably make, which behaviours are the ones that are the least important and which are the ones that could give us the biggest bang for the buck?
1: Flying. I've got some numbers here, for instance, and these relate to the average British household's carbon footprint. And you're looking at something on the order of eight tons of CO2 per year, a third from transport from your car, a third from heating and 12% from flying. In terms of personal choice, the car is something that you could easily change. You could easily buy an electric vehicle.
2: Hang on. You and I might be able to buy an electric car. I mean, it would be a bit pointless for me because I don't drive. But in general, people are pretty unwilling to scrap a perfectly good car that they're already using in order to buy an electric car. Uh, Well-intentioned people are still buying non-electric cars.
1: And the cost of an electric car is still higher than the cost of a traditional combustion engine car. So, again, we're talking about, you know, the system making these choices available.
2: there actually, I really do think that the, the market, I mean, the more we demand electric cars, yes. the, the bigger the market for electric cars will be. For me, I, mean, I think, yes, I could keep my house cooler. And I could um, insulate it better. And those are both projects that I'm working on. But use mass transit and vote for city governments and local governments, which can credibly tell you that they will invest in mass transit.
0: So, Ollie, does your observation suggest that the big thing we can do to change individual behavior is for big government to ban things that are bad when it comes to carbon and to encourage
2: things that are good when it comes to carbon? Yes, up to a point. The problem is that governments don't have and shouldn't have absolute freedom of action to tell people what, how they regulate every part of their lives. And in democracies, you have this great advantage that governments which try to do that against the public will will not last long in governments. I would not care to be a government which tried to ban air travel.
0: Or for that matter, tried to ban having children. People who don't have children dramatically lower emissions, don't they? Uh, But no democratic country would try to instigate limits on having children because it would provoke an outcry.
1: Yeah, I agree. The whole idea of tackling climate change, of stabilizing the climate in some sort of habitable envelope for humanity is not to make everybody miserable in the process, right? The idea is to create, in fact, an, an envelope that is habitable and equitable for everyone.
0: I think your point on making things equitable is an important one, Kat. There are some individuals who take loads of long-haul flights a year and others who have huge houses with poor insulation, while there are others who still barely use any electricity and never travel by plane. How can we get people to use energy more efficiently? There is an interesting proposal that looks at the carbon budget for the planet and divvies it up among all the people living on it. The concept is a personal carbon allowance with tradable carbon credits to encourage more sensible use of energy. I spoke with an academic who's been looking closely at this in her work.
3: Climate change is not something that government alone can solve. It's not a thing that the industry can solve or only individual. We have to think about ourselves as taking part in a societal action. We are not only consumers.
0: Yael Parag is the Vice Dean of the School of Sustainability at the Reikman University in Israel. She's an expert on energy policy, future energy systems, and consumer behavior.
3: If individuals are treated only as consumers, the only way to talk to them is by providing the right economic signal. But if I am treated as a citizen with responsibility to play some role in solving the shared challenge of the climate crisis, I should be approached with different tools, not only with price signals.
0: The idea of social responsibility is a very powerful one. So is there a way to tap into this sense of social responsibility across society?
3: Personal carbon trading or personal carbon allowances is actually a concept that tells you this is your amount of emissions that you can add to the atmosphere while still allowing us to meet the two degrees target. Every person receives a carbon budget or carbon allowance. And in every carbon emitting activity, he has to surrender units of carbon. Usually it covers electricity bills, natural gas for heating or oil for heating, uh, private transport and flights.
0: So you mentioned personal carbon trading. Would I be able to buy carbon credits to fly around the world? Or am I restricted so that once I've used my carbon budget, it's gone?
3: I looked at the policy proposal that you can actually trade. So if you behave in a low carbon way and you have access credits, you can sell it to the personal carbon market and earn money. So this incentivizes you to behave in a greener way or in a low carbon way. However, if you need more allowance because you use more energy, you can buy the extra allowance in the personal carbon market. So we don't want people... To have no access to the carbon. If they need more carbon, they can buy it in the market. They might need to pay for it and it might be expensive, but they can do it.
0: So would you recommend that a personal carbon allowance be implemented?
3: It's theoretically a very powerful tool. Would I advocate for it? No, I think we need to look at it in a more rigorous way to see, could this be another building block in our solution? There is no silver bullet here.
0: So personal carbon allowances may be a useful step, even if libertarians bristle at the restraints on freedom they impose, but they alone won't fix the world's climate problems. Particularly when the changes that individuals can make in their carbon budgets pale in comparison to the changes that governments can make to energy policy. We'll get our teeth into another way to reduce emissions in just a moment. First... A reminder that if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you can get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash climate pod. In this week's issue, we report on the epic race between America's two mightiest car makers to build the best electric pickup truck. Economist.com slash climate pod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Now, if you want to reduce your individual carbon footprint, a good place to start is with what you eat. Environmentally, meat and dairy are inefficient as sources of food. They provide just 18% of calories, but use 83% of farmland.
4: The livestock industry, meat and dairy, require about three of the four billion hectares of land that are dedicated to food production globally, That is China plus India times two plus Indonesia.
0: That's Bruce Friedrich, the founder and CEO of the Good Food Institute, a nonprofit group.
4: Right now, the Brazilian rainforest is being burned down. One, to grow soy, predominantly to be fed to chickens and pigs. But a lot of the rainforest is also being burned down just to graze cattle.
0: Not only that, ruminant livestock, such as sheep and cattle, release large amounts of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas.
4: Industrial animal agriculture is responsible for about 20% of global emissions, which is more than all forms of transportation combined.
0: The environmental impact of meat and dairy consumption has been obvious for a long time.
4: For 50 years, the environmental community, the animal community have been begging the public to eat less meat. And in those 50 years, per capita meat consumption, even in developed economies, has gone up and up and up and up. So it is a strategy that hasn't worked. We do not meet our Paris Agreement obligations to keep climate change under 1.5 degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial levels, unless industrial meat consumption goes down. And the only way to do that is to create products that taste the same or better and that cost the same or less.
0: The Economist's
4: U.S. digital editor,
0: John Fasman has been speaking to some companies that hope to do just that.
5: Recently, I was treated to a very exclusive food tasting.
4: We're ready here, I'm just gonna preheat the pan.
5: It took place at the test kitchen of a company called Upside Foods in Berkeley, California. There, the company's CEO, named Uma Valetti and a scientist named Morgan Reese, presented me with chicken piccata.
4: Uh, so we're just pairing it with some sautéed mushrooms. We have a blanc
5: sauce and some capers. Now, chicken piccata is a common enough dish. But according to Uma, I was only one of around 1,000 people in the world to have ever tasted this particular version. And what made it so unusual was that the chicken was grown in a lab. All right, uh, John, you ready for it? I'm ready for it. Yeah, taste and chew exactly like chicken. If you didn't tell me that this was grown in a lab, I would think it was a, just a, you know, a chicken tender. It's good.
6: Excellent. Excellent. That's really you know, what we're looking to accomplish.
5: Eating meat that comes from a lab, rather than from animals that are raised and slaughtered, could have enormous environmental benefits. And it might sound like the stuff of science fiction, but right now there are dozens of firms that can do it reliably, in labs, and at some scale. And they're vying to be the first to bring cultured meat to market. To grow meat in a lab, this process starts with a biopsy taken from a living animal. And from that biopsy, stem cells are isolated and then put into a bioreactor. And the cells are then fed a growth medium, containing basically the same nutrients an animal would get in its food. And then after a few weeks, the cells are harvested. Now, what happens then varies. Each company has a different method for turning muscle cells into actual consumable meat. So that's how it's done. But for cultured meat to really help address climate change, it will have to replace a sizable portion of the world's incumbent meat production. And that means providing competitively priced lab grown nuggets or burgers for billions and billions of people. At least theoretically, the technology to produce at scale exists. Companies just have to buy enough bioreactors and growth serum and hire enough people to harvest them. But it's going to take a long time. There are going to be regulatory hurdles to overcome incumbent meat lobbies. They're going to fight this process tooth and nail. And ultimately, it's going to depend on whether consumers will accept lab grown meat. Uma Valeti, the CEO of Upside, mentioned one incentive. And as we move forward, not only will we innovate on taste, on texture but also on the nutritional features so leaner fats and also the omega-3 ratios that will be favorable for for instance cardiovascular health so if companies could actually engineer nutrition into their meats add fiber to a hamburger or omega-3 fatty acids which are hugely beneficial into chicken that could give consumers an extra incentive to to opt for cultured rather than slaughtered meat But alternatives to regular meat don't have to be grown in a lab. There are plenty of plant-based options on the market. And unlike in years past when veggie burgers were sort of worthy pucks of compressed beans and spices, a lot of them really taste and cook like meat. Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are two companies that have attracted a lot of attention and investment because they make plant-based meats that really do resemble the real thing.
6: We love meat. Red meat, cooked meat, ooh, bubbly meat, impossible meat made from plants.
5: Both are now available in a wide range of American supermarkets, and Beyond sells its products in more than 80 countries. It's worth $7 billion. The company was founded in 2012 by a guy named Ethan Brown, who I met and spoke to when I visited the company's global research facility in El Segundo, just outside Los Angeles.
6: Beyond Meat is a company that's focused entirely on building meat directly from plants. And the idea is not to create a substitute or an alternative, but rather is to uh, understand meat better than anybody in the world and then go about the process of rebuilding that directly from plants. And so what we do is characterize animal protein here a lot. Right. What uh, characterizing so <coughs> understanding its structure and understanding uh, its constituent parts and uh, and its architecture. Um, and Here, too, precise formulas and processes
5: vary by firm, but broadly to make ground meat without animals, you first have to isolate protein from a plant source. Most often that's peas or soybeans. This isolated protein gets turned into a powder. And then that gets mixed with other ingredients, so it mimics the appearance, taste, and texture of the meat it's intended to replace. And these companies go to really great lengths to achieve that. For example, at the Beyond Research facility, I watched one team load a cooked beef patty onto a huge floor-to-ceiling vise called an E-mouth. And the purpose of doing that was to measure how much force is needed to squeeze it. And the idea is that their plant-based burger should have the same mouthfeel, should require sort of the same pressure as a ground beef burger. Now, as Mr. Brown explained to me, he's not aiming just for vegetarians and vegans. Right,
6: you going for meat? We're going 100% yeah, toward the carnivore and what we call flexitarian. And so there was this great stat out of uh, Kroger where 93% of the consumers were putting the Beyond Burger in their cart We're also putting animal protein in. That was like a big deal for us, show that we we're getting through to the mainstream.
5: So improving the technology and making it appealing to customers and making it a sort of natural part of their diet. You can buy Impossible Burgers next to cow-based burgers. That's the way to encourage people to eat less meat.
6: I think that the pioneers were thinking about climate, but I think in the main, people weren't, right? So us, our approach here is... We have to create a product that people desire more than they desire animal protein because we are not going to get there through you know, philosophy or through moralizing. I think people are drawn to something that's going to make them feel better, is going to taste great, and if they can do something good for the world while they're doing that, it's a win for everybody.
5: One problem though is that the better plant-based burgers, the Beyond and Impossible products, they're still more expensive in most markets than standard beef. They're closer to the price of organic, grass-fed beef. And while studies find that weight-for-weight, plant-based patties are responsible for just one-tenth as much greenhouse gas emission as muscle-based ones, that might not be enough to convince most meat-eaters to spend more on them. A world in which meat no longer comes from animals, or no longer comes mostly from animals is a world with less agriculture-driven deforestation and fewer methane emissions associated with cattle raising. And it might even be one in which ranches can effectively return to nature, and they can become carbon sinks rather than carbon emitters. Now, people shouldn't underestimate how difficult it's going to be to get the world to eat less meat. Meat is cheaper than it should be because in the current system, the environmental costs are externalized, so consumption is high in the rich world and soaring in the developing world. If alternatives to meat don't scale up, don't become cheaper and better tasting, there's a real risk that this tech-driven revolution will provide niche, feel-good foods for a few, but little, if anything, for the many. That
0: was John Fasman, our U.S. digital editor. You can hear much more about his tasting adventures and the science behind meat alternatives on the next episode of our sister podcast, Babbage which is a show all about science and technology. Now, we obviously need individual action to meet the obligations of the Paris Agreement. We all have to do our part. But let's get real. Kat, Ali, how do you change behavior at the organizational level? How do you get big companies, never mind huge countries, to emit fewer greenhouse gases?
1: Well, so Vijay, I mean, fundamentally, we've got an issue here, which is that greenhouse gas emissions are, in fact, one of the few, if not the only pollutants that we can put out in large volumes with impunity. So to start off, one possible incentive, which The Economist certainly supports, is to make polluters pay for the greenhouse gas emissions that they produce.
2: So how does that work in practice? Well, you have two real options for putting a price on carbon. You can either tax carbon when people emit it, or you can have a system of carbon credits whereby people exchange the right to emit carbon. And that ends up with people being driven to the highest efficiency that they can. And It means that the players in the market who have the greatest scope for becoming more efficient do so quickly. And that means that the overall improvements in efficiency are arrived at at the optimum cost. The problem with both of these approaches is that though they're really good for making people change their behavior within a system, so for instance, carbon prices have been very important in moving Europe from coal-fired electricity generation to gas-fired electricity generation, they're not necessarily ways to make people come up with the new technologies, put new technologies into play at a large scale.
0: There's another distinction, isn't there, Ali? The taxing systems give you certainty on price. We'll know in advance what price polluters will pay, but we'll have no guarantee of solving the problem. That is the emissions outcome. But if you have a system of carbon regulation, such as a cap-and-trade system, you're guaranteed the outcome, at least in theory, but it's not clear what the cost of achieving that will be. So it depends a little bit on what society values.
2: Well, it also means that in both cases, you in the end have to come up against political realities and you have to allow ways out for both. So for instance, when Britain had a fuel escalator tax, when things got really tough, that tax stopped escalating. And that's one of the reasons that these things break down because one of the problems with a carbon tax or a carbon price of any sort is it's not just instantiating it, it's also convincing people that it is going to stay or indeed increase over decades, If you really do convince everyone that there's going to be a high price of carbon in 2040, and absolutely everyone believes that, you will get a lot of change and maybe some quite radical change. But if you just say there's going to be a high price of carbon, people say, this person is making a statement about tax rates in 2040, and I think that that's not a thing that you can be certain about. And That's always going to be the Achilles' heel, not being sure that the system will stick.
1: The long-term perspective here is really important. And to come back to your earlier initial question, what can be done in order to incentivize companies, the the wider system, to shift towards a low-carbon economy? Giving that long-term certainty is crucial. And we've seen, you know, industries have been asking for this for years And part of that for me isn't just the pricing, right? It's also the regulatory system. So if you have, for instance, emissions targets that are legally binding within a country and therefore that have more staying power than just whatever the government in power of the moment is saying, then that offers industries more certainty as to what's going to happen, say, over the next decade or the next decades.
0: But one problem is that the politics of carbon pricing are very difficult. If you're going to tax something that's embedded in almost everything we use, the ordinary voter is going to say, hey, you're going to raise prices for me, right? This is going to make things more expensive. I don't like it. Now, one idea that I've long advocated is to make carbon taxes revenue neutral. That is, all the money collected by carbon taxes are returned as refunds to taxpayers. But if you have seven Hummers, as Arnold Schwarzenegger did when he was governor of California, guzzling gasoline then he would have paid a much higher carbon tax than the the virtuous Californian who has just a bicycle and a Toyota Prius.
1: Yeah, a dividend system where some of the money or all of the money raised by the carbon tax is returned to voters is an interesting one. For me, there's a bit of an issue, which is that we know that the transition to a low carbon economy is going to cost the system money, right? It comes with costs. And actually, does it make sense to return that revenue to the voters or does it make sense to use the revenue in order to pay for the energy transition?
0: Let's turn to the use of other ways of doing carbon pricing. In July, the European Union proposed something called a carbon border
2: adjustment. What problem does that aim to solve? One of the issues that any sort of carbon price brings up is what do you do about people outside the area where the price applies when they send things to you and when you send things to them. And that's what leads the idea of a carbon border adjustment, where you basically put a tariff on stuff coming from places that don't pay a carbon price so that they don't represent unfair competition to your own industries, which do. The problem with this, speaking as someone whose salary is paid by the economist, is that it's terribly open to protectionism. And so what you really want is very large systems of carbon pricing, which avoid those sorts of problems. Unfortunately, that means you have to have large political systems, which can enforce those prices. And the world tends at the moment to draw its political boundaries pretty clearly at the edges of nation states with honorable exceptions like the European Union. Unfortunately, you're now seeing them being talked about, for instance, in America, which isn't planning to have a carbon price scheme, but is thinking of having carbon border adjustments anyway, which is kind of inherent. Confusing.
1: Very confusing. Um, it's also a political tool. Part of the point of the European Union coming up with this carbon border adjustment mechanism is to put pressure on other countries, the politics of which it doesn't control, to institute some kind of carbon tax. So if you're India or China you have a choice. You can either leave your industries to pay the tax at the border, or you can start instituting your own carbon tax, in which case the carbon border adjustment mechanism ceases to apply. So there's also sort of a political lever to this adjustment mechanism.
0: Okay, so I accept your theoretical point that carbon border taxes can be very useful. But my worry is that in practice, they will encourage protectionism and set off a global trade war. I guess the only thing we'll agree on about this is that it's yet another political minefield to navigate in the energy transition. Now, the world isn't all bad news. In the final part of each episode, I want one of us to bring in something encouraging. Think rescuing kittens from a well, a story we've read about or a deeper trend we've observed or a positive angle related to climate change. I've got some good news for us. The first batch of steel made in a way that is compatible with deep decarbonization, that is producing very low greenhouse gases, has just been delivered by a Swedish company hybrid to a commercial customer. And I think this is a marker for how hydrogen can play an important role, small but important role in the future of tackling climate change.
1: That sounds really cool. I hadn't heard that. And low carbon solutions for steel and cement are very high on the agenda. So it's great to know that they're here.
2: Yeah. I mean, my question though, Vijay, is that from vague memories of the Bessemer process at high school, like, I thought carbon was basically built into steel. I thought that was part of the whole point.
0: Ali, you're quite right that carbon is inherent in strength and steel. But the process of using blast furnaces and coking coal, which is how a lot of steel, especially the high-quality steel, is made around the world, is inherently producing lots of greenhouse gases. making produces maybe 8% of the world's greenhouse gases. Whereas if you're able to substitute for that process with something called direct reduction, which uses hydrogen, which can be made from renewable sources, you're able to eliminate that greenhouse gas source.
2: And that's the opportunity here. And that sounds absolutely wonderful. I'm happy. I mean, obviously the problem is getting the hydrogen cheap enough, but I know that hydrogen is also getting cheaper. So yeah, I have little to quibble with.
1: Ollie is happy. Wait, Oli's feeling...
0: A rare point of agreement on this <laughs> panel. And just as a note of caution, I want to say for our listeners, of course, this is going to take time. It is expensive. It's cumbersome. But it points to a future in which hydrogen can be one of the tools for deep decarbonization. Windmills and Teslas ain't going to solve climate change by themselves. That's it for this week's episode. Join us next week when we'll look at the best ways to suck greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere. The new episode will be available next Monday. To a Lesser Degree was edited by Marguerite Howell, produced by Rory Galloway and Hannah Marino. The executive producer was John Shields, and the sound engineer was Evan Viola. I'm your host, Vijay Warren, and I'll be back next week to put the most important and challenging ideas and people in the world of climate change in the hot seat. See you then.